Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha-Torah, Amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in the merit of Mashiach Yeshua, may you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear, may you cause us to be healed and to return to you and completeness and wholeness by your Ruach HaKodesh and the merit of Mashiach Yeshua. Amen. Well, shalom, shalom, and more shalom all on you. Man, okay, so it has been, what, a couple of weeks now since I've done a Parashah GYS. So instead of calling this the Makates GYS, I will be calling this the Drop Zone. Because I am going to, with the help of Hashem, share everything from Parashat, um, basically Vayishlak, Vayeshev, and the little bit that I've discovered so far from Mikates, as well as talk about Hanukkah, Hanukkah, like the menorah. Okay, because it is the Erev of Hanukkah today is the the evening of Hanukkah will begin at sunset today and it'll be the first night of Hanukkah and so um, being Hanukkah Eve it is fitting to talk about that the fact is Parsha Miketz and Parsha Vayeshev and all in the Parsha after that which will be Vayagash they always fall around this time of year. Specifically, Miketz could be technically titled Parsha um, Hanukkah. So the thing about Miketz is it is talking about in the end. So if you look at Miketz, it is Mem Kuf Sadi. All right. And I'm just going to flip here in the Targum Ankalos real quick, making sure I don't lose my place. This is kind of a crazy little setup I got going since there's a lot of things that I'm overzealous to drop. But um, basically, the way Miketz is translated is Vahi Baet Hahi. Sleek out. Nope, that's not it. Miketz actually appears. This is the fourth Aliyah. Sleek out. That's uh, by a chef that I was reading by a chef. Sleeka, sleeka. Wow. Uh, I was listening to Rabbi Griffin's, aka Captain Israel's Aliyah Day, and he totally said, Mikate starts in Bereshit 41. So, anyway, Vayahi Mikates, Shednatim. Okay, Shenatayim is actually okay, so two, and then Yamim years. So, and it came to pass at the end of two years. So, at the end, Mikates, Targamonkalos, Mikates could denote the beginning of a period, as in Devarim 15:1 and Devarim 31:10. It can be an indefinite after. A period or the definite end of a period. Ankalos, Saadia, Rashi, Rashbam, Radak, Hizkuni, and others opt for the latter here. 
which means end of a period. Now, what I love about that is that this one word can mean at the beginning or it could also be at the end, which obviously makes me think about the Aleph Tav, which is crazy because I am the Aleph and I am the Tav. That's what Hashem says. And then that's also what's told that Mashiach is when we read He's Galut, which is Revelation. And so from Yeshiyahu's mention of Hashem saying, I am the Aleph and the Tav, I am the beginning, I'm the first and I'm the last, Slika, and then in He's Galut, we see Mashiach is the first and the last. So if you overlay those two, that's the deductive reasoning that Mashiach is the extension of Hashem, which I want to make sure that I'm clear that we understand that Mashiach is an extension of Hashem. He is basically, if you take the challah loaf and you take off that little piece that you separate when you're making challah, I'm a guy, why am I talking about challah? Because I love it so much, but because being aware of what actually happens, I think it's really cool that this is a, a really cool way to look at Hashem and Mashiach, Hashem and his Mashiach. If you look at that picture, you got the whole dough and then you take off a little piece and that piece is called the challah, the separated portion. Mashiach is like that little piece of separated portion of the full lump of challah dough. So, yes, he contains everything of the challah and he is the firstborn, the first fruit of the challah and things like that. But he's not the whole dough. There is much more beyond this little piece that we have. And Baruch Hashem that we get to eat the rest of it. So, you know, that is a actually a Taruma portion, which is a priestly portion, which is actually offered by the woman, which is why she either burns it or has a way of disposing of it after saying a bracha over it and, and doing all these holy spiritual things with it. So you get this idea of a mixture of the man and Shekinah because it's written in commentary about the man being formed from the dust of the earth after water arose as a mist on the, the surface of the earth. It says Hashem took the dust of the earth to form man in Bereshit chapter 2. Commentary on that verse, I don't have it in front of me, but I remember it says that just like the holiday is needed, is the way that Hashem fashioned and formed man. So you get this picture of Hashem forming man by his hand. And what do we have the women of Judaism doing on a weekly basis? They are forming a man, basically, when they're doing the challah loaf. They're doing the challah dough. They're imitating Hashem, which... Okay, shouts out to all the Eshet Chayil, the ladies of Judaism who are believers, who serve Hashem, who give it all they got in their Shomer Mitzvotness. Mitzvotness is now a word. And y'all get to be imitators of Hashem. Come on, man. Like, for real? That's legit. So, anyway, uh, so Shaul, when he wrote that, and I believe it's Ephesians chapter 1, or 5, verse 1 is what I was thinking. He says that we're to be imitators of Hashem. So, well, I do. I can get that in front of me real quick. So let me get that. It would be Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. Get you some. It is. It is chapter five, verse one. Thank you, Hashem. So I'm just going to read this with verse two, because, I mean, if you put this together, it's like, what? OK, 
Okay, so it says, so imitate God as his dear children. So if you're going to do something that God does, then you're going to be his child. Okay, then it says, and live a life of love. Love is defined by the mitzvot, by obedience, basically. So if you're going to live a life of love, you're going to live a life of obedience. That's why Yeshua says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because that is the way you express love, by doing what Hashem has commanded us to do. Why did he command us to do something? Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to go all the way back to Bereshit, Parsha Bereshit. And I'm going to bring out the Or HaChaim. And I'm going to specifically, since we're on this Eshet Chayil kick to start off the drop zone, um, I just want to shout out that, you know, people may think on the surface that Judaism treats women as second class citizens, that there's a, a worldly view that women need to have all this empowerment and stand up and, you know, be better than a man or be like a man or stuff like that. And then there's all the gender confusion that's also swirling in with that. So if you make room for that kind of stuff, that's how you get that kind of stuff. So... I just want to point out that since I've started this drosh here, I'm coming to you with sources that are really elevating the women. And when I use the term Eshet Kayil, that word translates into English as a woman of valor. But if you look at Kayil, Kayil has to do with strength, with power, with just like swiftness. Uh, it, it literally says that the right hand of Hashem does valiantly. Ose Kayil. And that is one of the Tehillim from the Hallel. And so the Hallel is like the section of Psalms where we're praising Hashem. And it talks about the right hand of Hashem does valiantly. So if you think about an Eshek Hayil, you are a woman who is what the arm of Hashem does. Which is why make you making Hala and then Hashem needing the earth to form man just like we would do Hala. I think that's amazing that you can you can basically say not only are you an imitator of Hashem, but you are what the right hand of Hashem does, which testifies to the arm of Hashem being the Shekinah, the action and the manifestation of Hashem. And so there's like this whole lump of dough right there for you. So ladies, get you some. Don't let anybody tell you anything differently about when you convert to Judaism, you just might as well cover your hair and sit at home and be quiet and rock babies and uh, clean the house and cook food. No, forget that. Like, not saying forget doing any of that stuff. I mean, obviously, there's part of that. We all have to do chores. We all have to raise children and things like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But no second class citizen, no discrimination, none of that. Bump that for real. Anyway, so talking about Hava, I love the way he does this because Or HaChaim, this is Bereshit chapter 3 verse 6 because everything is like, well, if Hava just wouldn't have eaten that fruit, we wouldn't have any of these issues. But the very fact that we utter that statement shows why we have our issues. I was just reading a source that says the only misfortunes that be befall us are because of our own actions. So if we're going through tough things in our life, it's because we've brought it on ourselves. That's harsh. I, I wasn't going to share that, which is why I didn't tab that, but I read that and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is uncalled for. But it's truth. It's reality. Because Hashem 
is one who only seeks our good. That's why it says Hashem uses all things to the good of those who love him. Okay. And then why Yosef could say the same thing. You meant this for evil, but Hashem meant it for good. Had the brothers not sold Yosef into slavery, guess what? The whole house would have been enslaved, sent down to Egypt, but yet they descended into Egypt like the true kings and priests. A royal priesthood and a holy nation went into exile as a royal priesthood and a holy nation on the account of the firstborn, Yosef, being delivered down in chains and bondage and what should have killed him, actually he was delivered from. And on all of that merit, the whole family would be blessed in their descent into exile, be sustained through exile and brought up out of exile. And guess who comes with them out of exile? It says the bones of Yosef traveled next to the ark, the ark of the covenant where the tablets were. Okay, so now you got a coffin next to a coffin. Okay, that's crazy because the word of God is living, it's active, sharpened into its sword, but then you got the bones of Yosef. And it's like, well, why you got this dead person over here? Because remember, Yosef was embalmed, so his flesh did not disintegrate. He was not just bones. He was preserved. So why are we calling him bones? And that's the beauty about knowing Hebrew, because the word etzim is also uh, is osmut, which is essence. So you got etzim and osmut, bones and essence being the same thing. And this is all about one who kept the living Torah, but yet died. And when you put those two things together, though you die, there's life. That's the beauty of Yosef and the ark traveling with the children of Israel. So you see Yosef goes down into Egypt and then he comes up out of Egypt. And had he not gone down, who knows what would have happened to us in Egypt. So I just want to paint a big picture for us that Yosef went ahead of us and then he accompanies us out, which is the beauty of Mashiach in Matit Yahu chapter 28, when he says, go therefore and teach all nations, literally Goyim, go teach the Goyim everything that I've taught you. Go teach the Goyim Torah. You know, the Torah was translated into 70 languages when Hashem spoke it and when Moshe spoke it. And it also was transmitted into 70 languages again when the Talmudim spoke it in Acts chapter 2. So the Torah is meant for the whole world. And that's why we're in exile. So Mashiach was letting us know we're going into exile before the exile officially started. Because when we read the Basora, all these events take place before this current exile of Esau or Rome that we're in. The period of basically the church as stemmed from Rome. The church did not come from Jerusalem, which is a very, very big point to understand. So if you are a follower of the God of Israel, Israel and Rome are very, very far apart, and they are very, very far apart, not only geographically, geographically, but morally, which is why we have all of our uh, different things. Die, you don't have to follow the Torah. Just love God. And it's just like, yeah, so you want me to go to a building on Sunday? You want me to study the Bible? Well, the, the back half of it, be aware of the front part. But don't really worry about keeping it because we don't have to do that anymore. 
and then you know just try to be good get some fellowship groups going you know do some positive things to impact the world but when it comes to however your standards are for how you're gonna be observant of the commandments you can do as much as you want to do as long as you love god and make him first in your life that that's a very very uh interesting concept so that is the teachings of rome and Jerusalem has completely different teachings but all of that is a digression to say back to or hakaim on bereshit 3 verse 6 so it says or hakaim concludes his defense of hava's actions he is commenting on hava for like wow one two three four five six seven eight nine and a little blop on the 10th page 10 pages defending hava so let it be known uh i didn't even finish ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 because i got on this love digression but anyway we're gonna get there hang on swirling around reverse it Whoop. okay so back to the letter to ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 so live a life of love that's what the past 10 minutes have been about. And then just as also the Messiah loved us, indeed on our behalf, gave himself up as an offering, a Corbin. He gave up his life to draw us closer to God. It's interesting because the Mashiach, who, what, when, where, why, how, all sorts of other questions about Mashiach by, uh, I always forget his name. So I'm going to make sure I quote it right. Mashiach. So Breslev writing, and it is by, I believe, Daniel Krenzman. Nope, Chaim Kramer. Krenzman is another guy who has a crazy commentary. But anyway, by Chaim Kramer. So he talks about in there that the whole purpose of Mashiach is to draw us closer to God. So I just want to point that out, that if him dying and giving himself up for us as a Corbin whether it's a thanksgiving, sin, guilt, or fellowship, all of that is to draw us closer to Hashem. Because Corbin, Karov, that means to be drawn near. So you got the Karov Ben, the son who brings near, Corbin. So it says, as a slaughtered sacrifice to God with a pleasing fragrance. And even in the letter to Corinthians, he talks about being a pleasing Roman Mashiach. So being an imitator of him, means you're giving yourself up for him and rabbi griffin and his crazy self decided on shabbat of parasha vayashev which was yesterday in proximity to this recording right now he said that in the exile because he's doing a shira sharim series which is amazing song of songs song of solomon and in there it's talking about how we're exiled currently and among the nations we're being scoffed at because if we're such a great people and our God is so awesome and powerful, then why are we at such a low point? Why are we at such a dispersal from our headquarters? And they're like, yeah, if your God's so awesome, then, you know, why are you here? And I could not help but think the whole time, which is why you'll probably hear me in the recording being like, oh my word. That's the same thing that happened to Mashiach while he was on the stake. People was like, you know, this poor guy, he saved all those people, but he can't save himself. Look, he's crying out for Eliyahu, but he was saying, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Eli, Eli, which is obviously the root of Eliyahu. I get it. 
but they're interpreting him calling out to his father as him calling out to Eliyahu. When you think about the fact of us being in exile and we're undergoing constant trials, constant conflicts, constant struggles, constant circumstances that are testing us, that are quote unquote slaughtering us, then you need to know we're just being imitators of Hashem. Anyway, Or Hakim, finally, defending Hava because the women are get you sums. All right, it says, it has thus become clear to us that there were essentially two things that caused the woman to stumble into sin. One was her assumption that only the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was prohibited, which caused her to stretch out her hand and taste the wood of the tree. Now, we talk about how there's the Etzkayim, the tree of life, and that that was the wood that Moshe threw into the spring of waters at Meribah, where the water was bitter for the children of Israel when they came to it. But after the tree was thrown in there, it sweetened the waters. So here we have this idea of the wood being a taste and being like fruit and sweet and all sorts of other stuff. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil has the same properties. The wood of the tree is actually food, which is why uh, somewhere in the Talmud I was reading, it was talking about the Messianic era and how big and all this, the produce is going to be like a grape is going to be like a big boulder that you roll up a hill and the jugs of wine are just going to be like these big silo type things and like it's just going to be overload on the size of the fruit. Basically, think about the the spies coming back from the land with the bad reports and how they had the cluster of grapes. It took four men to carry it or six men or however many men. It was a lot of people it took to carry it. So the Alam Haba is going to be just like that. But anyway, uh, talking about the fruit of the tree was just something that was so exceptional. Uh, it, it, was, it was good. The fruit of the tree and the alam haba will be tasteful and it, it'll be the bark of the tree. That's what I was going to do. The wood of the tree, not even the fruit that comes off the tree, but the branches, the trunk, all that. It's going to be good. You can eat it. So that's crazy. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same thing. So with the fact of Hava not understanding that the wood of the tree is actually edible. And it says, through which the words of the serpent regarding the tree's exceptional qualities were confirmed. I'm going to keep going because I want to I want to wrap that up. And it says the second was that she was unaware at the time when the command was conveyed to her that the tree provided wisdom to those who ate of it. For had she known at the time of the initial command that the tree possessed special qualities and that the creator was commanding her not to eat of it with that understanding. Hashem knew the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Hello, it's called the knowledge of good and evil, which is wisdom. Okay, like wisdom says, oh, that's probably not good for me. So therefore, I should probably not get involved with that. You know, there's a thing like if it, if you see a pit of fire ants, are you going to go sit down in it? Are you going to stick your hand in it? Wisdom would say, no, don't do that unless you really want to feel the pain. They're not called fire ants for no reason. Just thinking about the name fire ants. OK, so that's wisdom. So Hashem knows this. OK, and now 
the serpent is playing off of the naivety, pun intended, because nigh, Eve, like near Eve, you know, draw nigh to Hashem and he'll draw nigh to you. Okay, but anyway, it's a terrible pun. I shouldn't be uh, treating this that way. Okay, anyway, so had she known at the time of the initial command not to eat from the tree? Literally, don't eat the tree, like not anything of it. Had she had known this at the initial time that the creator was commanding her not to eat of it with that understanding, there would have been no room left for inciting the serpent to persuade her. She would have already accepted on herself not to eat of it, despite being fully aware of its qualities. Wrap it up. Here it is. Had Hava known the tree's beneficial qualities... All along, she would have still consented to the prohibition since that was the will of Hashem. That was the Torah. That was the commandment. That was the one mitzvah that she was supposed to do. Love Hashem with all her heart, with all her strength, and with all her might, her resources. Had she known of the tree's beneficial qualities all along, she would have consented. She would have consented to the prohibition she would have consented not listen to the serpent's words of disobedience to Hashem had she known everything it was only because she first heard these qualities from the serpent who painted the prohibition in a negative light that she regarded her initial consent as being in error how do we see the commandments of Hashem? How do we view the Torah? How do we view Mashiach? I.e., what does the law of Moses say and how do you interpret it? Remember Mashiach saying that on so many different occasions. Some written and probably some not written. And if you really look at that, if you look at what's going on with Hava, if the serpent Painted the commandment as negative to her and that caused her to stumble because the way it was perceived and then how much she knew or did not know, that's where the issue came in. That's where the stumbling came in. And when you think about why Mashiach would say we need to be children, okay, when the child is commanded not to run out into the street and to look both ways before crossing the street. Okay, the idea and the understanding may not be there for the child that, hey, I'm being told this because dangerous things could happen if I just run out into a street. They probably don't know that. But if one of their friends, Chasbe Shalom, comes up to them and say, you know, your parents are always so strict with you. Your parents never let you have a oh, wait. They don't say things like that. Kids say stuff like, man, that's not fair. That's not fun. I want to be in the street. And like if the kid is listening to that, just a bunch of whining and a bunch of life isn't fair and I'm treated like a kid, like I don't know anything and like I'm the one who's at fault and why is everything always got to be bad? OK, when it comes to that, how do you think the kid is going to feel? How do you think the child is going to feel when it comes to their parents saying, do not run out in the street, please stop. Listen to what I'm saying. Look both ways before you cross the street. The parent is coming from a place. I'm trying to protect you. I want you to be safe. I don't want you to turn into a pancake. I like pancakes, but not in the form of human beings. Okay, like I'm trying to like help you here unless you want to have a bad circumstance happen to you. 
Hashem is the same way on a greater and more infinitely exponential scale. So uh, I just thought that was really interesting that Or Hakaim is coming to her defense that she is stumbling and sinning because of her perspective of Hashem's mitzvah because it's painted in a light by the voice of an outsider. And which is why we have to understand the Council of the Ruach HaKodesh. The Council of the Ruach HaKodesh talks about the mitzvah and gives us good, good, wise guidance. Like, hey, Shabbat's great. I mean, check it out. You get all this time with Hashem. You get to be with your family. You get to get blessed. You get to bless. You get to fill up on Torah. Be unencumbered by work. You know that thing that you go through six days of the week where you're like, man, I had to work so much today to get to study Torah. That excuse is removed on Shabbat. Baruch Hashem, hallelujah. So someone comes up to you on Shabbat, how was your week? I don't want to talk about it, but I do want to talk about what I just read this morning or last night at the Arab table or what I'm looking forward to looking into at Oneg or when I get home or something like that because I don't have to go to work today. I got plenty of time to study Torah. I don't have to do chores today. I got plenty of time to pray, you know, and after I get my eat on for the third time, I'm going to study some more Torah and it's going to be awesome. The Council of the Ruach HaKodesh is like, is giving that information, is giving that illumination to you. So who are you going to listen to when it comes to the word of God? When it comes to the will of Hashem, for your life, when it comes to the Torah that you're supposed to walk out, are you going to listen to the serpent? Because every single time he's going to paint it in a negative light. It's going to be like, oh, look what you can't eat. And look, you see all these restaurants, but you can't go to any of them. Doesn't that make you mad? Look at this. Everyone celebrating the most wonderful time of the year right now with snowmen and mistletoes and trees uh, decked in silver and stuff like that. And all this music about cold nights and little babies and mangers. And like they're talking about the Messiah of the world. And you're over here like, no, I don't do that. I do Hanukkah. And people are going to look at you and they're going to isolate you. And people are going to buy you presents and make you feel like, oh, yeah, I need to uh, acquiesce to them and, and buy them presents. But even though um, I don't believe in that holiday, I need to get them something because they got me something. And it's just like, so about that that's all up in everybody's grill right now including my own because this is what we go through this is the serpent just constantly being around but the beautiful thing about that is that that is Hashem giving us an opportunity to say choose this day are you gonna take life and be obedient to my commandments include you not being an idolater which includes you not enabling the wicked which includes you shining light where there is darkness, basically giving clarity and, uh, and clearing up confusion and bringing in wisdom, seeking Hashem before your own intentions. Or are you going to choose death, do your own thing, get guilt tripped, succumb to temptation, so on and so forth. And that's where curses are going to be. That's where drama is going to be. That's where heartache is going to be. That's where sadness is going to be. The other thing that's on this page is that it says, Hashem anticipated both of these eventualities. He anticipated her first stumbling and her second stumbling because he knew that she didn't think the wood was good. And it actually was. And then she also um, 
again, that the tree possessed these special qualities that uh, gave wisdom. So Hashem already knew that she was going to figure this out. So it says, HaKadosh Baruku, which is Hashem, Master of Legions, knows what is in the darkness. Thank you, Hashem. And you think about this time of year that we're in, Hashem knows what's in there. So here's the footnote. Or Hakim in verse 7 below that the Yetahara embodied here by the serpent is associated with darkness because it darkens people's eyes. So Hashem knows what's in the darkening of the eyes that's going on. The the unclarity, the confusion, basically. He knows what that he knows what's in there. I.e., continuing commentary. He knew that the serpent was lurking in the shadows and that he would ultimately come to Hava with such arguments. Anything that's coming at you from a standpoint of argument, get rid of it right there. That's your first red flag. When someone's going to argue with you, that tells you everything you need to know. There's a friend of mine who always used to tell me, consider the source because Hashem he does not argue. Hashem says, choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose this day, life or death. Accept my son, or this is my son and who I'm well pleased. So if Hashem's well pleased in him, basically, so connect the dots, follow the bouncing ball over the words on the screen, like the old musicals. Like Hashem is just like, I am the Lord, your God, you know, who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, that kind of stuff. Anything that's antithetical to that, if it's coming from a place of argument, like you don't know what you're talking about. I grew up in a Jewish home or my grandparents done this a long time ago when it's always been this way in our family. This is a tradition. If you start hearing stuff like that, that's a triple red light. No yellows, no greens. That's right there. It shows you all you need to know. So anyway, Hashem knew that the serpent was going to come to Hava with such arguments as those recorded in the passage and that Hava would be swayed by his words as a result of her two errors and therefore with the speech of the righteous one, which is like choice silver. That is in Mishle 10 verse 20. And I do not have Shomer Blue with me and I knew I should have brought it, but I didn't. But oh well. I bet there's something on there. So the righteous one has a speech that is like choice silver. And remember, silver always speaks of Yosef and atonement. So the speech of the righteous one is atonement. It is sacrifice. It says so. And therefore, with the speech of the righteous one, he negated both of these notions, which is mentioned in Bereshit 217. It says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, literally of the tree, the wood itself. You must not eat from it. We see that Hashem was particular to say, but of the tree, to indicate that even the tree itself was prohibited. And likewise, by referring to it as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he informed Adam that the tree provided wisdom and that it possessed the ability to impart knowledge of good and evil. And with this understanding, he was issuing a decree not to even eat of the tree itself Having expressed this prohibition in this clear fashion, the inciting serpent would have no means of inciting Adam and Hava to sin, 
they would make no mistakes about Hashem's intent. This is why I, okay, so as my fellow Avenger, uh, Mighty Hover, you can tell I've been hanging out with him now because I'm about to say something that he always says. He always goes, well, this is a monotheism, just kind of what I think, so don't take me for gospel on this, but, and then he'll go out and say something, and it'd be like, wow, that's crazy. But anyway, like, crazy in a good way. <clears throat> so now I'm about to do an Ametism. And this is why, based off of what I just read, I believe it's important for us to understand the spirit of the law through Mashiach. If you look at the Torah through Mashiach, will, especially over time, more so than what I'm about to say, it will take away your stumbling and your causes for going into sin. It's going to become more and more that the reason you're sinning is because you chose to or you felt too overwhelmed and you could not help yourself. Okay, so yes, I'm speaking from personal experience on that point. But, um, you know, he who says we th he is without sin is a liar. That's written in the writings of Yochanan and also written in the writings of Yochanan. Yochanan was probably a, just a guy of life, man, like so connected to understanding how we actually function i mean a lot of us are but yeah he also says that as you are returning and walking in the paths of righteousness that it is the blood of mashiach yeshua who is constantly cleansing you which evokes the concept of a mikvah the thing about a mikvah is it's living water so the water is not stagnant it's not just contained okay it is constantly flowing it is constantly moving it is constantly renewing and we're to enter into the waters of mikvah, which is Hashem, as is written in Yermiyahu, that Hashem is the hope of Israel, which the word for hope is actually the word mikvah when you look at the Hebrew. So it says Hashem is the mikvah. And the sages picked up on that and they said that believing in Hashem and returning to Hashem actually causes us to be purified as if we went into a mikvah. How much more so when you go into a mikvah does that continue to manifest out? So when you look at the fact of us walking by the Torah of the spirit, keeping the letter and the law intact, keeping Yosef next to the ark, keeping the, the bones of Yosef next to the tablets of the living one. OK, because remember, the top of the ark is called the Kippurit, which is called the face of God. OK, or likened to a human face, Slika. Um, the teachings of the Talmud, Humash brought that down. And it was talking about uh, Yaakov going before Yos or Yitzhak when he was receiving the brach. It says he was, it was like Yaakov entering into the Holy of Holies because he was going before the face of his father. And that's when they decided to say, oh yeah, this is like when the Kohen Gadol goes into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle blood on the, on the, on the uh, mercy seat, on the top of the altar. It's like into a human face. That's why Yaakov went to, went before the face of his father. So, yeah. So anyway, um, keeping the body and the face connected, the head connected to the body, Mashiach connected to the Torah, our prayer connected to our teshuva, connected to our observance. OK, got to keep it all as a package thing, because when we do that, we remove the stumbling blocks. We remove the place of erring into sin. And that's something that takes time. OK, especially for us, since. The Yetzirah is embodied within us, but it wasn't embodied in Mashiach.
So it was completely external because he constantly chose, I will not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was his whole entire life. He was the continuation of what Adam should have done before the incident of Bereshit chapter 3, which is why he knew no sin. But he was able to become it because he was able to take it upon him as an external garment, the same way that Yaakov took up on Asaph as an external garment. Which is why in Judaism, especially Lapid Judaism, we seem to be Christian and we seem to have, quote unquote, church because this external appearance of what we've taken on with understanding Mashiach Yeshua and the teachings of the Talmudim, the teachings of Shaul, the teachings of the Brit Hadashah, we've taken on that essence, but there is nothing about Lapid Judaism that's Christian. There's nothing about our synagogue that is church. Church has to do with a circus. It has to do with a circle. It comes from the word cirque. Look up some etymology on church. It's far from the intent of Ecclesia and, um, you know, getting back to Ecclesia and to Cahal and all that. Then you start to get the literal understanding because that is basically the great congregation that was in the wilderness. That's what this modern word church is actually connected to or should have been connected to, but it got disconnected over the centuries because, you know, darkness ensued and covered the earth because we decided to go away from Torah. We decided that our love is OK with growing cold and we can do more Catholic uh, root type things, which is why we celebrate festivals other than the ones mentioned in the Bible. And somehow they connect to the Bible and it's just kind of like, yeah, so therefore we don't need to do Rosh Hashanah. We don't need to do Yom Kippur. We don't need to do Pesach. We can now do all these other festivals and that's cool. And it's just like, no, no, that's completely way off base. So anyway, I just loved seeing that about Hava that, you know, it came from the fact of how she perceived the mitzvot. It came from the words of the serpent and it came from a lack of the depth of what it is to truly be connected with Hashem. Because when we are, we'll be able to get beyond the stumbling blocks of understanding the, the simple things like the commandment of don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil contained everything in that statement from God that she needed to know. Because the tree provided wisdom and the tree itself was actually good for consumption. And Hashem conveyed that in his word. So if we're not getting the full picture of the Torah, we need to be asking Hashem for a deepening of understanding, which is why I've begun to pray for light. Because and we don't understand the current darkness that we're in, that we can't fully see, we can't fully know, which is why we can see things like the Torah is the name of Hashem. The Torah is a manifestation of Hashem. And then when the Torah takes on flesh, it's still the name of Hashem. It's still a manifestation of Hashem. And so not being able to understand that Mashiach Yeshua is a part of Hashem and like all this kind of stuff is because there is a darkening of the eye and the serpent is right there doing his work being like, oh yeah, that's why we can have a Trinity because you know, he's, he's a deity, but you know, he's not, he's not as great as Hashem, but he's kind of like Hashem. So like you got the father, the spirit and the son and like they're each God, but they're different. And so you can kind of follow God and then, you know, believe in Yeshua and then like do stuff like that. And it gets all crazy. But when you take away that darkness, when you let the light in, you see it's all Echad. You see Hashem is Echad. 
because Hashem himself is spirit. But yet when we see Mashiach, Hashem and his Mashiach, when we have knowledge of him, okay, that's all together. It's not separate. This is why Yochanan chapter 17 says, and this is eternal life, that we know Hashem and his Mashiach. Mashiach is like an attachment, a connection, a, a again, we use the, uh, the picture of the, the challah, the little part that's separated from the big challah loaf. It's a manifestation. It's a part of, okay? So if we have light, we can understand these things and we can be deepened into seeing, oh, wow, just because Hashem said this, that also means this, 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 and this, and this. And therefore, if someone comes up to you to tell you something otherwise, you'll be able to see it. Anyway, um, we're at a lot of time into this drosh and I haven't even gotten back to McCates. Hopefully, that was helpful for somebody. Uh, now I want to jump to Parsha Chaye Sarah. Because as I was thinking about, you know, uh, how are we seeing the mitzvot and what are we doing actually with the word of God? In Chaye Sarah, it talks about where she died in Kiryat Arba uh, in Hebron. Uh, it says in Bereshit 23.2, Sarah died. So it says this. Or Hakaim continues with a remez, an illusion, basically. Illusion, not illusion, not something that's fake and tried to be something, but something that points us in a direction. It says, it explains what is alluded to by the name Hebron. Why Hebron? So when the verse says, which is Hebron, it means that even though Sarah died in the sense that her soul departed from her material elements, she continued to impart her elements, which is the capacity to remain somewhat connected to each other. So if you look at that, she continued to impart her elements, the capacity to remain somewhat connected to each other. The, this explanation is based on the similarity between the name Hebron and Hebor, which means connection. Hebor means connection. Ordinarily, when a person dies, his material elements separate from each other and the body thus decompose, decomposes. In Sarah's case, this did not occur. Rather, her soul continued to keep the elements of her body bound together. This is why when you study the cave of Machpelah as brought down through the commentaries of Lech Lecha all the way into uh, Vayaki when uh, Yaakov is finally buried in the cave of Machpelah, talks about Adam and Hava were there, Abraham and Sarah were there, Yitzhak and Rivka were there, and then obviously Yaakov and Leah are buried there in a way that you know it's them, i.e. their bodies did not decompose, but yet they're dead and buried. So that's crazy. So anyway, so they just wanted to start out like that. That said, Hebron alludes to the fact that Sarah remained connected. So her soul departed from her material elements, but she continued to impart her elements, the capacity to remain somewhat connected to each other. For even when the righteous die, their bodies do not become completely devoid of life. As the sages teach in Brachot 18a, the righteous are considered alive even after they die. You can see this from the incident recorded in Shabbat 152b and the Gemara, the Gemara, involving the sage Rabbi Achai 
Bar Yoshia. The reason for this is that the righteous, while they are alive in this world, transform the material quality of the elements of which their body is comprised into holy spiritual quality of into the holy spiritual quality of the soul through the good deeds and or extraordinary Torah study that they endeavor to perform in this world and once transformed into spiritual entities are no longer subject to the physical deterioration of death. Footnote, Warhaqaim discusses the concept of transforming one's physical aspects into spiritual entities in several places. And I give a whole bunch of notes. So yeah, just want to uh, say that when we look at how the word of God took on flesh, but yet the flesh that the word took on remained transcended of the flesh that it was in, i.e. Mashiach could have been crucified and everything, and he died, but, you know, he was resurrected, and even while he was dead, he was still alive, so Mashiach really didn't die, even though he died, and this is why we can understand now, Moshe died, but didn't die, Yaakov died, but didn't die, and uh, I love Or Hakim actually, Parsha Vayaki talks about when Yaakov died it says he actually gave up the ghost just like mashiach he gave up the ghost when he died and then if that wasn't enough or hakim continues to go on to say is yosef kissed yaakov after he gave up the ghost because yosef kissing yaakov after him expiring after him dying should have actually made yosef uh, contaminated by a dead corpse but Yaakov's corpse was considered alive to the point that there was no impurity from contact with it so Yosef kissing Yaakov after him expiring did not impart the impurity that a normal corpse after someone has died would actually impart what is that saying you know, so, I mean, we're looking at this idea of the righteous people causing their flesh to transcend into a spiritual, um, basically, for lack of my definition anyway, get you some. A spiritual get you some. Like, it's incredible. It's transformed into spirituality. And our flesh becomes transformed through the Torah, which is why, you know, again, an emetism is going to be that our flesh is resurrected in a new form and the trueness and the fullness of what we began in this world. When we are brought into the next world with the help of Hashem, our flesh will finalize that process and become that completely resurrected body. Slika that is prepared and ready to go for the Alam Haba. Our flesh takes on a new form. Which is why I want to bring up this. Let's go back to Parashami Kates now. And I have this wonderful thing called Lakute Torah. And Torah or a Hasidic uh, discourse and Ma'amar, Ma'amarim as they call it, talks and, and words. And uh, on page 83, it says that the mitzvot form a, a garden for, or a garment for the soul in the garden of the Alam Haba. So you have this idea of, okay, so your flesh becomes new through the Torah and the transformation and the holy pursuits that we go in through this world. 
But then not only does that transform our body, but that also becomes garments for our soul. So it's bringing down the Zohar here. It says it states that the mitzvot serve as a garment for the soul. What is this garment? Why does the soul need garments? What does the garment affect? The explanation is as follows. The mitzvot serve as garments for the souls in Gan Eden. These garments embrace and wrap the soul, serving it as a protector and shield against the great godly energy that is revealed in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. Although the entire purpose of Gan Eden is to serve as a reward for the souls through the soul's experience of pleasure by basking in godliness. This is why it says pleasures at his right hand forevermore, because when we experience the the true energy and the godly energy that's revealed in Gan Eden in the Olam Haba, that's going to be beyond any pleasure that this world has to offer. So the reason why we sometimes get caught up in all these pleasures, uh, whether they be physical or spiritual in this world, that's because that's a fraction of what we're going to receive in the Olam Haba, which is why we get attached to it here. But Hashem gave us the mitzvot to help us to overcome that, to say, hey, I know this is bringing you pleasure, but you need to, okay, back off of that, do this in this way so that that way you have it appropriately. And so it's just kind of like this picture of when uh, the kid is young and they all they want to do is eat cookies. It's like cookies are good. Like, okay, it's great, but you don't need to be having cookies for breakfast, lunch and dinner and for appetizers and for your five course meal. You need to have real food, have a have a few cookies afterwards, you know, and maybe later, you know, when you have a party or something, you can have cookies as a dessert or, you know, something like that. But you don't need to be having cookies for all of that. So anyway, so Hashem is helping us channel all these pleasures because we're going to have this amazing amount of pleasure in the Alam Haba. But again, they're going to be filtered through the mitzvot, which are garments for our bodies, because as this unrestricted pleasure is going on in the Olam Haba, these garments are going to help protect us again, just like they did in this world. They're going to do it in the next world. So as we're experiencing, back to the commentary, as we're experiencing the pleasure of God by basking in godliness, nevertheless, this godliness must be screened and shaded in order for the soul to retain its existence and experience the pleasure. A soul is a godly entity that becomes a creation and now itself feels separate from God. It is hence naturally limited and defined. The soul's main character is its intellect and through its comprehension of godliness, the soul reaches levels of ecstasy and gone Eden. This is why you'll meet people who are just like, I, I, I love you very much and shalom. And Shabbat Shalom, blessings, but I'm going to go over here and say some Torah real quick. You're welcome to join me, but I need to go do this. It's like, why are you so antisocial? It's like, I just need a, I need a little bit of, I need a little bit of something right now, you know, like fiending. Okay. Basically, um, not to be all weird, but I mean, truly you get, it's like, uh, it's like crack. Okay. I, I mean, not to be like, take crack and see what it feels like, but no, the the common joke about like oh that person's on crack it's just like well there's some literal meaning to that because our soul gets a high off of true intellect and knowing who Hashem is which is why eternal life again knowledge of Hashem and His Mashiach is such a thing so you have to have the mitzvot to help you appropriately channel everything in this world so that you will be 
whew, hopefully ready for what's going to happen in the Alam because it's going to be on a more exponential scale. Basically, it's going to be on a more turned up scale in the Alam So if you ain't ready now, then you're going to just blow up in the Alam So you need some mitzvot to kind of help you get the appropriate amount. It's like you can have a glass of water that you get from a spigot. But if you try to take that same glass and put it next to a fire hydrant, not only is the glass going to break, but you're not going to get water and the water you will get it will choke you out. And then whatever proximity the glass is, the glass might cut you from being shattered or whatever. And you might fall and you might hit something and you, you just won't get the cup of water that you were desiring. But you want water. You need water. You got to have water. So just a, a way of just helping you, safeguarding you. And again, how are you seeing the commandments? Because the is like, I got a fire hydrant ready to go, but you just need a glass of water. Okay, so I'm not going to give you a glass of water from a fire hydrant. So take these few mitzvot here and get your glass. Take a little bit at a time. This is why it says line upon line, precept upon precept. Yep, yep. That's how we rep. Step, step. That's how we step. Okay, anyway, sorry, I got into my rap. But line up on line, precept on precept, that's how we're to walk in Torah, okay? That's why walking, if you look at the way you walk, how do you walk? One step at a time. That's how you got to do it with Torah. The physical is an example of the spiritual. This is why you can't separate the two. This is why loving God and believing in God has to have a physical expression, which is why we have mitzvot. Okay, so that was uh, Torah or page 83 parsha miketz from lakute torah all right so the other thing from chaye sarah in the or here about sarah transforming her flesh into holiness and all that kind of stuff and how we do the same thing through the mitzvot it says or elaborates to enable you to understand this matter go and see what rambam uh which is maimonides or some people say mammonades um, writes in chapter four of Hilkot Yesode HaTorah, chapter five, that each of the four elements can be transformed into the element to which it is most similar. For example, earth can turn into water. Similarly, you will find that through a person cleaving to his creator, all the elements of which his body can be made up can eventually be transformed into the element of fire. My God is a consuming fire. Okay, I feel like there's fire shut up inside my bones. Like, okay, that's where those come in. This says, and the element of fire can then be transformed into spiritual fire of the soul. Ponder this. So if you're going to cleave to Hashem, at some point, he transforms you into like a ball of fire. And then from that ball of fire, you can get close to the spiritual fire of the soul. So it's just kind of these levels. The righteous go from strength to strength. So throughout your life, as you're constantly striving, this is why I believe, again, in a metism, I can't, mighty hover, I blame you for this. Okay, but anyway, the righteous go from strength to strength. We keep uh, straining and pressing towards the high mark of the upward call in Mashiach. Not that we have attained it all. Yes, Shaul wrote that, but this is what he was talking about. Because if you're straining and if you're pressing you're turning yourself into someone who cleaves to Hashem and causing your body to transcend. Okay, so now we get a better picture of why was Moshe on a level? Why was David on a level? 
Why was Mashiach Yeshua the level, you know, and then the level beyond the level and all that kind of stuff? That's because that's it's this progress. You keep transforming. OK, every day transforming. Can't get enough of that. What was that? That was one of my songs. So I was like, what it do? It's disciple E. I came to raise up the heat, singing praises to the king. Lord, rain on top of me. I bring his fire because he put it in me. He fills me up. So I walk empty. Walking in the word, you can see the God in me. Okay, anyway, so yeah, that was that. Love that song. Uh, that, that makes me fired up right now, pun intended. It's just a blazing subject. Man, all right. Thank you, Shem. Yishtabak Shemo, you are amazing. Okay, Or Hakaim continues his remez based on the approach again. This is all commentary on Bereshit 23.3. As for why the verse says in the land of Canaan, it is because this world is referred to as the land of Canaan, being a name for the Yetzahara. Zohar, volume 1, 80, page A. Footnote, ready? The land of Canaan, the Torah teaches how Sarah was able to reach the great spiritual heights. This is how she was able to do that, by engaging in constant battle against the Yetzahara. Don't be scared of your Yetzer. Your Yetzer is there to help you transform. And if you do with it what you're called to do with it, then Baruch Hashem. So now, Parsha uh, Miketz. Now, when Yosef... Oh my goodness, I flipped... Okay, thank you, Hashem. This page is bookmarked. I didn't even do this. Okay. The verse I'm wanting to look at right now is what in the world did Pharaoh call Yosef? Because... Pharaoh represents his idea of the Lord of the exile. Okay, like this exile that we're currently in, who's over this current exile? Asaph, Rome. So, Yosef, who does he represent? He represents Mashiach, Yeshua, in this current exile. So, let's overlay Pharaoh over here with Yosef, with the current exile of Asaph. Rome, basically, Aesop and Rome, synonymous, okay? And then Mashiach Yeshua. Who is Rome, Aesop, a.k.a. the church, calling Mashiach Yeshua? They're calling him Jesus. Pharaoh is going to call Yosef Zaphonat Paneach, okay? So that is 4145, okay? Bereshit 4145. Paro, which, by the way, it's interesting to know, Paro literally means pay ra like an evil mouth or an evil speech. But anyway, um, and then if you spell it backwards, it's orif, which is the back of the neck. So basically, if you, oh my goodness, um, I need to do uh, on the on the spot definition. All right, uh, I need to look up because I'm looking at paro right now. For some reason, I'm thinking of rofe. But uh, I'm going to confirm this real quick to make sure there's no MSU going on. All right, so I need my dictionary of the Targum. Bear with me for one second, everybody. We're going to stall out in our flight real quick. But the beautiful thing about stalling in an Iron Man suit is you don't fall. But don't stall in an airplane. It's not safe. It's not safe. All right, so Raish Pay... Ayin, give me some. Raish pay ayin. Do we have anything? Mm. At the summit, and from summit it goes to. All right, 
never mind. I was thinking of uh, Rafa, which would mean to heal. And uh, how do they spell that word? It's interesting. So first place I'm going to is Yeshiahu 1922. Adonai will strike Mitzrayim with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to Adonai and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. This is why we have to overcome darkness with light, overcome evil with good, and um, just understand that those who are actively at work in evil, we need to uh, pray for them and pray for their teshuva. Hashem doesn't want anyone to perish. So, okay, so the word I was thinking was Ray Pei Aleph, which is to heal. And the cool thing is the Targum actually teaches that the Ayin and the Aleph are interchangeable because when you look at the skin that we received after we fell from grace in the garden after the sin of eating from the tree, we had skin of Or, which was Aleph Vav Resh, which is the skin of light. And the new skin that we received after the fall, after we were lowered in our spirituality, it was Ayin Vav Resh, same letters except with an Ayin. So you have this idea of Rafa, if you take Paro's name and take out the Ayin and substitute it with an Aleph, okay? And by the way, the Ayin is 70, which speaks of the 70 nations. It's the final letter of Mashiach Yeshua that is missing from his name today because his name is called by Yeshu, which is not good because that actually is an acronym for may his name be erased. And we don't want that. But that's why the beautiful thing is when you bring in the nations to Torah, you actually have the name of Yeshua. Because Yod Shin Vav Ayin, Yeshu is Yod Shin Vav without the Ayin, which is where the word Jesus comes from. So Jesus is actually saying, may his name be erased. Chasve Shalom. That's not good. But then Hashem in his mercy has this whole thing where when you translate Yeshua into Greek, you have no way to put the Ayin in Yeshua's name. So therefore, there is just a regular Greek ending that's put onto his name, which is the Us, which is where the uh, S-U-S comes from for Jesus. So his name really is Jeshu, which is Yeshu. OK, like I was saying before. But anyway, bringing in the Ayin, okay, the 70. So right now, if we're looking at Paro, back to Paro, with the Peresh Ayin, if you take out the 70 nations and make them all one, which is the unification uh, through the Torah, okay, now you got the Aleph. Now you got Pera, which is, okay, Pera or Pero, because you can still say it the same way. But take that and rearrange those letters to Reish, Pei, Aleph, and it could actually be the word for healing. So what are you going to do with the Ayin? Are you going to unify it? Are you going to bring the nations to Torah? Because if you're not, you're going to be Paro. But if you are striving to bring the nations to Torah, you're healing the world, making it a better place for you and for me and the entire human race. Anyway, I swerved and digressed, but that's the whole thing about Paro naming Yosef Zafanat Paneach. So anyway... And why Yeshua is not called by Yeshua in this current exile. He's called by a name that conceals his true identity, which Yosef being called Zaphonat Paneach conceals his identity so much so that when his brothers even show up to him, they're like, 
you're in league with Pharaoh and you're not a part of the Jewish people. You're not a Hebrew. You're just another Egyptian. Da, 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 da. And it's just like, what's, what's the claim about Yeshua? Well, he's a good Jew, but uh, he's a Christian. He started Christianity. And it's just like, uh, well, no, just no, just don't. Anyway. So what is Zaphonat Paneach? Why did he give him this name? First of all, Yosef was the only one to interpret Paro's dream. Rabbi Griffin brought this down in the Aliyah uh, for Yom Rishon of this parasha, and he said that there were people who could interpret dreams everywhere in Egypt, but Hashem, by his spirit, shut it down. He literally used those terms, shut it down. And I like those terms because this is clearly showing that if we're thinking that Hashem has any opposition, then we're already coming from a place of ununderstanding. Ununderstanding. Did we really just do that? Yeah, I really just did. But we got to have clarity to know that Hashem is over all of that. So this is why the classic thing of it's God versus the devil. Who's going to win? That's not appropriate. And uh, furthermore, had it not been for the shutting down of all the people who could have interpreted it, Yosef would not have been able to step up and interpret. All of that is going on. And so now, because of the fact that Yosef could interpret it, and Yosef was like, I can do nothing on my own. I, everything I do, I only do what my father who sent me, you know, is doing. Which is why it's so important to go back to Parashat Vayashev and understand the garments that Yaakov gave to Yosef was the secrets and the wisdoms and the teachings of Torah that would enable him to go throughout all his trials and tribulations of this world. That's crazy. I know Rabbeinu Bakia brings it up and Rashi and all sorts of stuff like that. But just know that because now when Yosef is coming into this, he's like, my father told me all this stuff. And so now everything that I'm doing is not of myself. It's from my father. So now you can see why Yeshua says, apart from my father, I can do nothing. This is why if you have Mashiach Yeshua, but you don't have Torah, you don't have Hashem, you don't really have anything. Okay. But if you connect it all, you have everything. Okay. This is the difference between Esau and Yaakov when they met. Yaakov says, I have everything. Esau says, I have a lot of things. If you have just Mashiach Yeshua, I mean that's great because you need to you need to know Mashiach but just remember you will be lacking the power this is why you, it's a form of godliness but it's lacking the power because the power comes when you put the plug in the socket put Mashiach into your observance anyway Mashiach Torah Hashem I have it all mitzvot sacrifices temple you need it Everything needs to go together because that's godliness with the power. Okay, but anyway, when Yosef is interpreting his dream, he's not of himself. And then remember, the Shekinah was with Yosef. So there's that. So Pharaoh utters that the spirit of prophecy is upon this guy. The spirit of Hashem is upon this guy. So let me go through here, um, break this all down. Okay, so first of all, um, where does he do? No one could explain it. Uh, he said, okay, so I'm Targum OG Onkelos right now. Paro saw that all the magicians regarded his dreams as two separate predictions, which caused them to interpret the dreams erroneously. He understood that they were only one dream. He's citing Sephorno. And then it says, 
the spirit of prophecy from before the Lord. That is verse 38. It says spirit of Elohim. The Aramaic rejects the anthropomorphism by explaining the phrase as he does for Barish or uh, Bambibar numbers 1125 because it says Moshe spoke with the image of Hashem. But, you know, anyway, so anthropomorphism uh, has always become a code when especially when Targum says that that means here is a manifestation of Hashem. So now the spirit of Hashem, which is the manifestation of Hashem, i.e. the spirit of Mashiach, because that's what hovered over the waters. Ruach Elohim, Merachefet, Alpine Hamayim, the spirit of Hashem hovered over the waters, Bereshit. Okay, anyway, it says, um, this is similar words, the Targum adds, Holy Spirit. Oh, snap. So Pharaoh says the Holy Spirit is with this man. <laughs> So it says uh, the noun Elohim is also replaced by the tetragrammaton. Okay, so now they're saying that this is the Holy Spirit of the Yod and Hay with the Vav and Hay. And the view of the Egyptian hatred of the Hebrews, Paro felt it would be politic and prudent to procure his officials' opinions and accord to Yosef's appointment. That is from Ramban, which is Nachmanides. Now, the crazy thing about this is there is a whole thing that's dropping about like they're like no uh, Hebrew person, no slave can ascend to the throne and rule in Egypt. And this kid is young and he's in the dungeon and like just all this disgrace and all this mocking that's going on. And the very things that they mocked is the very things that actually became true, which Rabbi Griffin did a masterful job of explaining this about Ramban Gamliel and Acts when uh, Kepha and Yochanan were on trial before the Sanhedrin for teaching in the name of Mashiach. He said that if this is from God, we can't do anything about it. But if it's not from God, then it will disperse and it will end. And that'll be the end of that. So let us not have anything to do with it. Give them some stripes to warn them or give them stripes or flog them and uh, warn them not to teach in that name and let them go. What do we see in that? Lapid Judaism is alive and well. It has been preserved, though secretly, throughout generations for like 2,000-some years. And now we're seeing the the poking out of the head like it's coming out of its foxhole now. And so it's just kind of like, oh, it is from God. It's it's still going. Gamaliel was on the point. Like, okay, and this is why uh, pointing out that Mashiach was, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Yosef's son? Like those very mocking things actually are the reality. So we need to know that and, and believe that and trust that. And so when you read any commentary that's speaking ill of J-E-S-U-S, -S, then you need to understand that that mocking is actually bringing more illumination to Mashiach Yeshua. And so calling him a sorcerer, saying his name is um, it is steeping in human excrement and he's a heretic and he wants to be a Talmud of somebody else. And I, trust me, the facts of the Peshat is that these different J.E.S.U.S.s that are brought up are different. OK, they're not uh, they're First of all, they're not historically Mashiach Yeshua and they're also from different time periods so it's not even the same one it's just the name and the name obviously causes hot buttons to be hit let the hot buttons be hit and you still have the fact that these very uh mockings and these very just horrible statements are actually pointing out truth about who Mashiach truly is 
Because there's one of the JESUSs that they talk about. He's Simkhan Sasson. He's Joy and Gladness teaching at the Festival of Sukkot like we read in John chapter 7. And they literally cite John chapter 7 in the Talmud. And you're like, what? Okay, but trust me, that's crazy. That's a Sukkot drosh and that's not here, even though it should be. Because this is a drop zone. Everything should be dropping. But anyway, um, I just don't know what to do with that. There's just the very things that are said about him being opposite or just that actually became true so everything that they said about Yosef he actually he he became the ruler over Egypt and uh there's also this part where Yosef uh, is uh it's during the famine now and people are coming to him and asking for grain they're asking for bread they're asking for food during the famine Yosef's like oh great I first of all how you doing good to see you um what is it that you would like? Okay, uh, I can get you a number three and we can have, uh, you can have some fries on the side. Do you want a large drink? Okay, great. So the total cost for your transaction is going to be to circumcise yourself. And it's just like, what? Get out of the drive-thru line. I need to go to a different restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's just like, okay, wow. So anyway, that's again, an Amet elucidation. Mighty Hover, I'm going to find you and tackle you. Okay, but anyway, um, so when the people go to Paro, they're like, uh, excuse me, your little second in command over there, he said that we need to get circumcised in order for us to partake of the food that belongs to Egypt because it's stored up for us to keep us through the famine. Like you put this guy in charge and now he's saying in order for us to eat of this food, we got to circumcise ourselves. Like, he's treating this like it's a Pesach thing. Like, you can't eat a lamb unless you're circumcised, unless you're a Jew. Because you're just not going to. You're just not going to partake of the food of the king's table unless you're Jewish. Okay? Because, by the way, when you get circumcised, that's a step towards conversion. If it's done in the right spirit. Which is why if it's done in the spirit of Yosef, it's the right spirit. So, if you have believers in Mashiach Yeshua who are getting mikvah, i.e. baptized, or if they're getting circumcised, they're stepping towards conversion. And then when Mashiach returns, he's going to complete that, which is why everyone who is undergoing the conversion process during this exile time period is going to be finalized and retroactively um, stamped and approved and all that, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be all set and done when Mashiach returns and we enter into temple worship again in the third temple, maybe speaking soon in our days. Because all of the sacrifices that we're supposed to bring, we can't bring them right now, which is why the blood of Mashiach is so important to go with our conversion, because that's the way we present our sacrifice, as well as if you're a guy, if you're going through the milah, the circumcision, that's also considered a sacrifice. So there's that. So then you got in your blood live and your blood live, the blood of Mashiach Yeshua, the blood of your circumcision. Okay. If you're a person in general, when your heart gets circumcised, that's also a sacrifice because your life is going to vastly change. Okay. You're probably going to lose some family members. You're probably going to lose some friends. You're probably going to lose your job. And that's totally fine because Hashem will repay you tenfold, if not more, for everything that you lost. And you're going to be just mind blown about it. You're going to be like, I can't believe, I can't articulate. I didn't even think this was possible. Who, what, uh, why? Oh, wow. Uh, I'm crying. Okay. I'm happy. Okay. I'm jumping through the wall, all that kind of stuff. Trust me. Okay. That's all lumped up together. With all of that being said, Paro's response to these people was, Hey, go to Yosef and go do what he says. I don't got, yeah, Hey, he's in charge. 
And they're like, you're Pharaoh. You're over Yosef. Come on, man. And he's like, nope. Go do what he says. So they had to get circumcised. So yeah, there's that. Um, Yosef just circumcising people so that they can eat. And uh, yeah, so, oh, because what I was getting to is that they they didn't like Pharaoh's answer. And Pharaoh's get you some response was, didn't, didn't, weren't you aware of the local news for the past seven years that there's a famine coming and that you probably want to make some reservations and some storing ups for yourself? When the famine comes here, there's going to be some issues. And you know, you should probably have prepared for that. And they're like, we did prepare. We have food. Even the food in our basket, it rotted. We don't have anything. His response to that was, well, you know, it is a decree of Yosef that your food in your own basket rots, even though you stored up for the famine. How much more so if he prophesies Egypt should be destroyed? So you better go do what he says, because if he says something else different that doesn't work out in our favor, that's going to be problems. It's going to be an issue. And they're like, so if we don't follow the word of Yosef, then we're going to perish. OK, so we have to submit to the word or submit to death. I, I distinctly remember saying that it is Hashem says, I set before you life and death, choose life or you can choose evil, death and curse, you know, like all that kind of stuff. So it was with Yosef and Paro backed him up. And so it is with Mashiach Yeshua and Hashem backs him up because he subjected everything into the hands of Mashiach. Mashiach said, even as he was uh, Matthew 28 again, he says, the father has given me all things. Therefore, okay, and then I love Shaul points this out. Uh, it's in Corinthians. He says that everything was subjugated underneath the sun, but not Hashem himself. Hashem was never placed in subjugation to Mashiach, but everything else was. So, yeah, so there's all that. And that is commonly left out as Corinthians and the writings of Paul is being taught. Um, so, yeah. OK, so Zaphonat Paneah, get to it. OK. Verse 45, so it says, the man to whom hidden things are revealed. The biblical name, Zaphonat Paneach, is probably Egyptian meaning, which is why J-E-S-U-S is probably a Greek meaning. Well, when you, it's actually Ieshus, if you say it in uh, Greek, or or I don't know what the Aramaic derivative is, but Ishmaele knows. We have a, we do have a Jewish Superman, by the way. Uh, so shouts out to Ishmaele, uh, Superman, much love to you. Uh, so anyway, he's our kind of, uh, Aramaic correspondent. So I should have probably approached him on this, but anyway, if I can catch up with him, <laughs> anyway, um, so looking at the actual Greek name for Yeshua would probably kind of overlay with this Zaphonat Paneach, like Zaphonat Paneach is to Egypt as Yeshu is to Greek or Aramaic. So that's pretty cool when you think about that. But anyway, OG Onkelos is pointing out that even though Zaphonat Paneach sounding Hebrew spelled in Hebrew probably has an Egyptian meaning. That's pretty cool. Meaning God speaks. Oh, well, <laughs> why is J-E-S-U-S -S always said to be translated as into the salvation of God? Well, Yeshua literally means salvation in Hebrew. And then Hamashiach means the anointed one. So Yeshua Hamashiach, the salvation of God, the anointed one, like the person who is the salvation of God and the one who is anointed, 
that's basically what Yeshua HaMashiach translates. So if you get behind the Peshat meaning of the name, then you start seeing crazy things. So if you look behind Zaphonat Paneach, you're seeing that God speaks. Oh, he also puts he lives like God lives. And then or is rendered by the Septuagint. Translating that bad boy into Greek. It says the creator or the sustainer of life by N. Sarna. The sustainer of life. God speaks. He lives. Okay. Ankalos Saadia Rashi Bekorskor Rashbam Nachmanides comprehend the name as a combination of Hebrew words, meaning interpreter of codes, and connected with Yosef's penchant for interpreting dreams. Radak reasonably asked, why would Paro give him a name in Hebrew? Ibn Ezra quips. I love this because quip is like a Tony Stark thing. And all these quips that are happening on, like when him and Captain America were fighting. And he's like, I ain't afraid to hit an old man. And it's just like, wow, really? Anyway, so a quip. So uh, Ibn Ezra quips. If this is an Egyptian word. We do not know its meaning. If it is a translation of the Egyptian name, we do not know Yosef's Egyptian name. I, I love that because it's just like, if it's an Egyptian, we don't know it. Because like, it's Greek to me, basically, is what he's saying. So from one quip to another quip, Ibn Ezra, you are now elevated in my books. Because I, I like quips. That's pretty cool. Uh, speaking of quips, let me go ahead and quip this in here real quick. I mean, real quick. Uh, it is uh, the festival of lightsabers as of sundown. And so why did Anakin's Jedi Masters or when did Anakin's Jedi Masters know he was leaning towards the dark side when he was in the Sith grade, sixth grade, Sith grade? OK, and then why did the angry Jedi cross the road to get to the dark side, i.e. to get to the other side? Anyway, start to throw those in there. Now, Zafanat Paneach, as crazy as all that is, I'm going to go over to Shonuf Pincus on Parsha Shemot from 5778 and on page 4. He says, HaKadosh Baruchu arranged for Paro himself, the head of the Klippa of Mitzrayim, to appoint Yosef as the viceroy of Mitzrayim. As it is written, Bereshit 4142, and Paro removed his ring from upon his hand and put it on Yosef's hand. He then had him dressed in garments of linen and had him ride in his second chariot. And Ohev Yisrael, the great rabbi of Apta, may his memory be blessed, points out several allusions in this pasuk. So Remez, Remez, Remez. It alludes to the fact that Hakadosh Baruchu adorned Yosef with the Kedusha of the six orders of the Mishnah, which is Shas. Shas is the Hebrew for six orders of Mishnah. So Yosef is adorned with the Kedusha of the six orders of Mishnah. It says he was the master of the chariot. Chariot is Merkava. So the Shas Merkava, the six orders of the Mishnah, the chariot, that's Yosef, that's Zaphonat Paneach. It says, of the six orders of the Mishnah, note the similarity between the word Mishneh in the Pasuk and Mishnah. Okay, because Mishneh is uh, 
made him to ride in his second chariot. Uh, let me go to get some interlinear going. Check this out. So Mishneh and Mishnah are related to each other. So Genesis 41, 42. I'm going to give you that little phrase there so we can see where Mishneh appears. Okay, first of all, it says, Big Day Shesh, which is the Shas that I was talking about, garments of fine linen. So in that verse, it has the word Shas, which is an allusion to the six orders of Mishnah. And then it says, Vayasem Revid Hazahav al Zavaro, uh, and put a gold chain around his neck. Okay, so then this is the English Bible, so I need to get to the verse that talks about the chariot. Here we go. Uh, it's verse 43 if you have a non Hebrew Bible. It says, Va Yarkev Oto Be Mirkevet Ha Mishneh. And he made him to ride in the second chariot. Ha Mishneh is the second from the word Mishneh, which means a double and a copy. So the chariot that Yosef rides in is a copy of the chariot that Paro rides in. So that you can't tell if it's Pharaoh or if you can tell if it's Yosef. So this is where it comes into a better understanding and picture for us. Is it Hashem or is it Mashiach? Because they're a copy. And then the two Torah scrolls that a king is supposed to write for himself. They're the same Torah scroll, but one's in the treasury, one's around his arm. Okay, this is it's like, wh which one is which? Well, obviously, the one in the treasury is a bigger one. Okay, so now we can get a better picture of that. So, but it says a double and a second copy. So if you understand that the oral Torah is the written Torah, but it's a second copy. Because when Hashem gave forth the Torah, he gave like the written part of it. And literally some, a lot of commentary basically says the 10. This is why it's always said the, the writings, the Torah, the, the teachings, the instructions and all that kind of stuff. It all breaks it down in Shemot about what Hashem actually gave Moshe. Which is why we have to understand that you have to put everything together. If you have a Bible, that's great. But there's a lot more to it. Which is why having all of these sources gives us a better understanding of everything. Had we not known the commentary on Zaphonat Paneach... I mean, how much are we really going to get from Pharaoh called Yosef's name, Zaphonat Paneach? It's like, okay, great. He called him hidden. Okay. So we looked up the definition. Okay. But now we don't get all this stuff. But anyway, so a double second copy, Mishnah. And it says, um, this is first used in Bereshit 41:43. So this is the first time this word is used. And by the way, um, in Bereshit 43.12, in the English Bible, it says this, because it's using Mishnah again. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put into, your, into the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. So the amount of money that Yaakov gives to his children to go back to Egypt with Benjamin is what uh, the Mishnah is. So the Mishnah is like this, the same amount and, and take, make a copy of it. Okay. So this is why Mashiach says, I and the father are one. Like if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. Like they're asking, show us the father. And he's like, how can you ask me that? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So, I mean, this is all happening right now. Second chariot. Okay. Anyway, Mishnah for Mishnah. 
Okay, Mishnah for Mishnah. The six orders of Mishnah. So the garments that Yosef was in plus the chariot that Yosef was in equals the Shas Mishnah, which is the oral Torah. So the embodiment of the oral Torah is the garments and the vehicle that transport them, i.e. The, the spirit and the flesh together, okay? I.e. Yosef's coffin next to the ark, okay? Anyway, says this encompasses all of the Torah Sheba Al-Pei, Sheba Al-Pei, which is of the mouth. So the written, or the oral Torah. So the six orders of Mishnah, is the Merkava, the chariot, and it encompasses the oral Torah. It says, the Degel Machane Ephraim, Om Miketz, is a Jewish work. The Degel Machane, Om Parsha Miketz, writes a similar explanation and adds that Yosef actually merited becoming the Merkava of the six orders of the Mishnah. So if you're in Yosef, you have the oral Torah. So if you're in Yeshua, you have the oral Torah. You have to have the oral Torah, by the way, if you're in Yeshua. Because if not, you don't even understand who Yeshua is because Yeshua is never talked about in the written Torah. How do you know that there is even a Messiah? How do you even know you have to be hidden in Messiah and partake of his flesh and eat of his blood? Like all these different things Yeshua says, the bread of life, and Moshe wrote about me. Moshe did not write about Yeshua in the written text. Yes, you can find some illusions, but when you simplify to face value, Peshat, simple meaning, you do not see anything about there's going to be a Mashiach, like a Messiah. His name is going to be Yeshua. You need to believe in him. He's going to lead you to be closer to Hashem. You're not going to see any of that. You find that from the oral Torah, i.e. you find that from Yosef, the Zaphonat Paneach. You find that from Yeshua HaMashiach. Which is why having the Basora with your Torah is such an incredible thing because now you see where these things match up. The, T the TTB, which is the Torah to Basora class, last week we read about how the virgin, the virgin shall give birth to a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's actually from Isaiah chapter 7, but it's in the Basora account and the overlay and match because... Yeshayahu, the commentary on that is talking about this is the Mashiach. Because when you look in Yeshayahu chapter 7, Hashem says, I can give you a sign, King Ahaz, and Ahaz rejects it. And then Ahaz has Hezekiah as his son, who most Jewish commentary says is Mashiach. But the thing is, is Hezekiah was supposed to be Mashiach. King Ahaz accepted the sign that Hashem was ready and willing to perform. But King Ahaz outright said no. And then Hashem still has Hezekiah to be born. But instead of him being born as Mashiach, he was just born as another king of Israel. So the importance of Teshuvah is way beyond an understatement there. That Hashem still gave King Ahaz, even in the birth of Hezekiah, to make Teshuva, but he still didn't. So don't ever let anybody tell you it's too late to make Teshuva, because there's still some value in making Teshuva, even if it's at the last minute, which is why the deathbed confession about believing in God and being sorry for your life of sin is a thing. There is merit in that. But had you walked into Shuva your whole entire life, especially since you became aware that you need to make Teshuvah, I mean, that's way better. <laughs> so 
You there, yes, so yeah, there we go with that. But anyway, so it's through the oral Torah that we know about Mashiach, and the oral Torah is embodied in Yosef. So if it's embodied in Yosef, then how much more so is it embodied in Mashiach Yeshua? Because looking at Yosef, we can understand the Mashiach. We can understand Mashiach Yeshua. There's all that. Back to Shonaf Pinkus. It says, this provides us with a very nice interpretation of the Pasuk. 41.45 in Bereshit, and Paro named Yosef Zaphonat Paneach. Rashi provides the following clarification. The decipherer of the cryptic. Based on our current discussion, we can suggest that Paro himself pronounced this prophecy without knowing what he was prophesying. You know, kind of like Caiaphas who says, should one man die for the sins of a whole nation and the nation to perish? And it's like, well, actually, that's a profound prophecy. That actually is true. He should die because if he doesn't, then we're all going to perish. Talking about Yeshua. Anyway, so it says, Yosef was truly a decipherer of the cryptic since the Torah Shebe al Pei, the oral Torah, deciphers and reveals all the mysteries of the Torah Sheb Katav, which is the written Torah. This is why I, I spent so much time in Or Hakim on Bereshit 3.6 because having the decipherer of the Sheb, the Torah Shebeal, Shebe Katav, the written Torah, having Yosef, having Mashiach, having the spirit of Hashem to decipher what Hashem's written word says is the key. It will reveal the mysteries. And it says, now Rashi adds that there is no word resembling Paneach in scriptures. We can suggest that Rashi is alluding to the fact that the Torah Sheba al explains all of the things for which we cannot find an explanation for or similarity to elsewhere in the written Torah. Now, if we combine the remarks of the great rabbi of Apta, may his memory be blessed, that the Klippa of Mitzrayim opposes the Torah, the study of the Torah Sheba al so opposition to studying the written Torah, i.e. burn their Talmuds, burn their uh, Mishnah and their Midrash, all that. Forget all that Jewish uh, tradition stuff. Mitzrayim, the Klippa opposes that. Asav, that opposes that. This church opposes that. Okay, anyway, we can suggest that HaKadosh Baruch Hu purposely arranged from the start that Yosef Hazarik as the Markava of the Mishnah would be appointed to the viceroy position, which is Mishne Lamelech, which is the copy of the king, the second in command to the king, the second in command to the ruler of Mitzrayim, as the functional ruler of Mitzrayim, as it states in Bereshit 42.6. Now, Yosef was the ruler of the land. Yosef would be in a position to successfully subdue the klipa of Mitzrayim that opposed the Torah Sheba al -Pay. This is why he had them get circumcised, because now the klipa is weakened. And Rabbi Griffin brought this up in Parashat Vayashev last week. And so uh, there's all of that. Now, you probably are thinking, I thought you were going to talk about Hanukkah. And you know what? I am. And let me make sure I do that. Uh, real quick, Rashi on Vayashev, uh, Parashat Vayashev, Bereshit 37, 3 says Ben Zekunim, because he was a wise son to him, all that he had learned from Shem and Eber, he taught him Yaakov to uh, Yosef. Says another interpretation of Ben Zekunim is his facial features were similar to Yaakov's. 
Bereshit Rabbah 84.8. Okay, so that was important because it was important. All right, so let me go to Hanukkah, and I'm going to hit you up with Shonuf Pincus on this. Uh, quick practical note before I do that. Um, when you're doing your Hanukkah lighting, uh, because this was kind of a discussion myself and Yovel were talking about, it says when you light the candles each night, light the newest, which is the left-hand most candle, and continue lighting from, le from left to right. So you light from left to right, from the newest to the oldest, okay, candles. It says we add lights to the menorah from right to left, while we light from left to right. Okay, because we were talking about the fact that you put your Hanukkah in the window and then you want to light it. So it's just like, do you write it like with your right or with the with the right hand of the window perspective? And it's like flipping the, the Hanukkah around. It's just like, whoa, 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 don't don't do that. <laughs> so light the Hanukkah left to right like you read in English. Put the lights in the Hanukkah like you read Hebrew. So. As you're lighting up your Hanukkah, it's the process of like writing a Torah scroll because you write the Torah scroll letter by letter, line upon line, okay, and you go from right to left. So by the by the time you finish Hanukkah, you'll have a whole row of light that you basically progress through as if you were writing a line of Torah. But when you're lighting it, you're actually going from left to right. So you're adding the letters, but then you're coming back and you're putting the crowns, which is the fire flame on top of them. OK, so you're lighting up those wicks. And so you, you have this idea that salvation is first for the Jews because you're going from right to left like a Torah scroll. But then it's to all nations, to the Greek and to the Gentiles, all, like all that, like Gentiles, non-Jewish, basically. So salvation first for the Jews then for the nations. So this is why Yosef had to send everybody out of the room so he could reveal himself to his brothers. And then ultimately the family could come in and then all of Egypt would know, oh, it's it's a big Jewish family. We all get to be Jews too if we choose to. And like we can leave when the Exodus happens and go to the mountain, get the Torah, go to the Alam Haba, all that kind of stuff. So anyway, you can see that when you have your Hanukkah. So that was a thing. So if you're thrown off by that with the window, hopefully that would help you. Um, and by the way, the halakha is that you don't want to put the Hanukkah more than 30 feet high, because if you do, you exceed the depth in which Yosef fell when he th was thrown into the pit. And that's from Tractate Shabbat in the Talmud. So it contrasts the height of the Hanukkah with the depth that Yosef fell when he was thrown into the pit. So what does that say? That the the light of Mashiach, which is represented by the Hanukkah, by the way, this is why it's called the primordial light, the sacred light from the first few days of creation. The first three days, 36 hours of light, which was the light of Torah, the light of Messiah. And then that translated into 36 hours in the Shabbat because Shabbat was 24 hours. But Shabbat was like, oh, can we have a few more hours, like 12 more? And it's like, that's a big few, but OK, you can have it. And that's why it was 36 hours of Shabbat, because if you took the 24 and then you added on the 12 and it's just like, OK, there you go. 36 hours of Shabbat to correspond to the first three days. So the first Shabbat was like a three day of light thing a uh, three days of light because rabbi anava always says how many hours are in a day and people always go 24 and he's like ha ha he doesn't say ha ha but anyway he goes no 
It's 12 hours in a day. There's 12 hours of light in a day and there's 12 hours of darkness at night. And that constitutes 42 hours or 24 hours sleep out. So anyway, uh, so Shabbat technically was like three periods of day. Okay, like three days, which is kind of like really cool when you think about the fact that Yeshua was risen on the third day. But even while he was dead, he wasn't dead. Go back to Parashakaye Sarah with our Or Hakaim section that we did about Sarah died. But uh, the righteous people, even though they die because they've transformed their body so much, even as their body is dead, there's still life in it. So, I mean, that's crazy all to itself. Anyway, um, so now there's a whole thing about the comparing the Hanukkah to the menorah. There's the seven branch menorah, which represents the seven, sh seven shepherds. And then there's the eight days of Hanukkah and all that kind of stuff. So there's all that. But what I want to get into is that there are 36 candles besides the Shamash. When you do the, the actual total number of candles that you're lighting for the Hanukkah process, there are 36 of those. And that corresponds to the 36 hidden Zadokim in each generation. Uh, so stand by. I'm going to, I'm doing show enough pinkus on Hanukkah from 5779. All right, so this is on page three. He says, we can suggest for this reason that after praying for the victory of the Hasmonim, he added the tefillah, which is um, where he prayed for the miracle of the kindling of the lamps in a state of cleanness, purity. He prayed that HaKadosh Baruchu would favor the works of the hands of the tribe of Levi, their efforts to light the menorah with pure olive oil. Because it's doing this whole thing where when it's during the week of Hanukkah, we have a additional prayer that we recite during the Amidah and the Birkat Hamazon. And it's all about the victory over the Hasmonim. But Hanukkah is all about the miracle of the eight days of the menorah being burnt. And so it's just like, why not the miracle of the battle versus the miracle of the, the menorah lasting for eight days when it should have only lasted for one? So they're doing that. So we just dropped into the middle of that. So just to kind of catch you up. So it says the their efforts to light the menorah with pure olive oil. That's really the big thing. Hashem is focused on what efforts are we making to really uphold his words, to really go through the fact of deciphering, not giving up, battling against our Yetzirah, st standing for his truth like that's what Hashem considers the miracle. And that's what Tractate Shabbat, when it talks about Hanukkah for that little few sections there, it's focused more on the, the actual, the oil, the purity, the lighting of the menorah. And it's just like, but there was this giant battle where like these five old guys and some other Jewish people got together and fought off the Greeks. And it's just like, Okay, great battle, victory, yeah, 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 great. But, you know, what they did, they did that because they were trying to rededicate the temple and take it back from people who were sacrificing pigs in there and doing all sorts of other disturbing things. Like, they're standing for the word of God kind of thing. So anyway, it says, in reality, according to the Halakha, it was permissible for them to use impure oil for this public community purpose as expressed in Panay Yehoshua on Shabbat 21b. They could have gotten by with just saying, hey, we got some impure olive oil anywhere. Light it up. They were like, no, that's not good enough. 
And this is where, again, we walk by the Spirit, okay? It's not good enough for us to just say, keep the Shabbat and keep it holy. Like, what is the Spirit of that? Okay, we're going to embellish the Shabbat. We're going to make it beautiful. We're going to really take this time and take full advantage of being able to study, being able to encourage one another, being able to go deeper into our studies, being able to go deeper into prayer, being able to meditate more on who Hashem is and, and like absorb all this and eat a lot of challah. Okay, if you if you can, if you're gluten intolerant and you can't do that, don't do that. But anyway, it's just my personal bias. I like I like challah, so I threw that in there because for me, I would really want to you know eat to the glory of Hashem by consuming as much challah as possible. And I realize that's probably going to make me bigger than the house, but I got to get my workout on anyway. I digress. You got to go beyond the letter of the law, and that's why you have the ruach hakodesh. That's why you have the Torah shebel pei. That's why you have Yosef. That's why you have. Mashiach Yeshua. That's why you have the words of Mashiach Yeshua. He is the flame for your candle. We're the candle of Hashem. Okay, the soul of man is the candle of Hashem. The lamp is the mitzvah. The light is the Torah. Okay, light it up. Okay. Nevertheless, Hakadosh Baruch Hu favored them with a miracle, enabling them to light the lamps for eight days in a state of purity. We can suggest another illusion in Moshe's prayer, for the term Chayil. Uh, can be expressed as an acronym for Chai Yamim Limod Ve'av, alluding to the fact that over the course of eight days of Hanukkah, we light a total of 36 candles. All right. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, there was another thing that I was really wanting to do with that. Stand by. Oh, yeah. Of course, this uh, it says that when you look at the lighting of the 36 candles on Hanukkah, score corresponding to the 36 tractates, the Masekot, Masekot is singular, Masekot is plural, plural, that is tractate. So the way you say tractate is Masekot. So if you really want to sound cool when you're dropping a Talmud drop, you can say, oh, Masekot Shabbat 21b says and they'll be like what you're like oh you don't know about the shots and they'll be like what you'll be like oh I'm, i mean the oral tour six orders of mishnah you know just talmud talk you know anyway just throwing it out there so it says the 36 candles of hanukkah correspond to the 36 masekot of the torah sheba al pay so there's a, this idea of the 36 is embodied in yosef because remember the torah sheba al pay is embodied in yosef it's embodied in mashiach okay and then it says, this makes perfect sense because it's explained the Torah Shebe'al Pei, which consists of 36 tractates, represents the self-sacrifice of the Torah. It uses the term pilpul. And it says, the sages of the Talmud analyze and clarify all of the halakot of the Torah. Let me give you a quick drop on pilpul. Go to 36 and um, I think we'll call it a day. Lots of things that I now have to get to, and I just want to make sure. Okay, the term pilpul is from the word pepper, loosely meaning sharp analysis. Refers to the method of studying the Talmud through intense textual analysis and attempts to explain conceptual differences between various halakhic rulings or to reconcile any apparent, 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 how many times can I say apparent? contradictions 
How many times have you heard people say, oh, man, the Bible would be great if it didn't contradict itself. Or, man, I would I would have no problem believing in God if his word didn't contradict itself. Man, I was with a group of Avengers on Shabbat and we were looking at Yaakov's name change with Abraham's name change and how we're not allowed to call Abraham by his former name. And then Neri Arok, the Green Lantern, comes in and was like, yeah, because, you know, when someone converts, we don't bring up their old life. And we're just like, oh, get out. Thank you so much for that insight, though. But get out. What's wrong with you? Get some help. And then we were looking at that. Okay, so the Halakha is not to call Abraham by his old name, but when Hashem also changed Yaakov's name to Yisrael, Hashem explicitly states in the text, you are no longer to be called Yaakov, but I call you Yisrael. But then he's called Yaakov, and it's totally fine for us to call him Yaakov, and it's totally fine for us to call him Yisrael. So it's just like, wait, contradiction, because Hashem never said don't call Abraham by his previous name. But the oral Torah does. It says, don't do that because you transgress mitzvah when you call him by his old name. That's what the oral Torah says. But the written Torah doesn't say that. And then the written Torah says, you are no longer to be called Yaakov, but you're to be called Yisrael. But yet the oral Torah says, yeah, you can call them both. It's just like, that's a contradiction. It's just like, well, get your pill pool on. Get your sharp analysis of studying the oral Torah on. Get hidden in Mashiach so you can learn some. The other thing about this pill pool word that was so great. Um, by the way, that was an insight from Shonaf Pincus on Hanukkah 5779 page 6. Is that when he uses this term pill pool in here, he uh, talks about like this, this whole thing of uh, having like you're sacrificing yourself. So this is on page four. It says, hence we find that the Chazal, the sages, recommend Torah study with exertion by employing pill pool as a segula, okay, as like a, a, a treasure, basically, for restoring Torah knowledge that has been forgotten. So your Torah is not going to be retained unless you're struggling and challenging yourself and sacrificing yourself. And he gives a source. He says, Ketubot 103b, Rabbi Hanina said to Rabbi Hia, do you dare argue with me? If Chasbe Shalom Torah was forgotten from Yisrael, I would restore it through my exegesis, pilpul. So if you want the English word for pilpul, it's exegesis. So then it says, um, we see that expositions and analysis of Torah possess the fantastic power of restoring Torah knowledge that has been lost and forgotten. If you forget your Torah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go back over your things and study, which is why I have pulled up somewhere, I hope. Yes, Sanhedrin 99b. Check this out. Sanhedrin 99b. Sing every day. Sing every day, i.e. review your studies like a song that one sings over and over. Rav Yitzhak Bar Avudimi says, from what verse is this derived? It is as stated, the hunger of the laborer labors for him, for his mouth presses upon him. Mishle 1626. Hashem... May it be that I always remember to bring Shomer Blue to the podcast recordings. I mean, so anyway, uh, I.E., 
He exhausts his mouth through constant review and study. He labors in Torah in this place, which is this world, and his labors for him in another place, or in the Torah labors for him in another place, which is the Alam Haba. So if you labor in the Torah of Hashem, written and oral in this world, the written and oral are going to labor for you in the world to come. So then it says, Rabbi Eliezer says, every man was created for labor. As it is stated, man is born for toil. Eov, which is Job in Hebrew, 5, 7. Based on this verse, I do not know whether he was created for the toil of the mouth, which is speech, or whether he was created for the toil of labor. When the verse states, for his mouth presses upon him, Mishle 16, 26, you must say that he was created for the toil of Torah. And still, I do not know with regard to the toil of the mouth, whether it is for the toil of Torah or for the toil of conversation. So now you need to make your Torah study a conversation. So now when people ask you, are you talking to yourself? You'd be like, yeah, and I'm answering myself. And this is pill pool. Get you some, which means exegesis, which means I'm going over my studies, which means I'm also singing because singing, reviewing my Torah study. It's also rocking babies. There was another place that was saying that your Torah study is like your children. So everything that you learn, if you forget what you learn, it's like a parent forgetting their child. Woo, that's crazy. So when Hashem says be fruitful and multiply, that means have lots of children, which means have lots of Torah study insights as one of the, the interpretations. Another interpretation of that, because obviously the literal meaning is have physical human children, but also have Torah children like have insights have things that you learn and don't forget about them take care of your children grow them up okay put your lines upon lines and precept on precepts because your children they got to grow up and they got to leave the house i.e your tour study has to build up on itself be put together in a certain way that you can give them out to people who have questions the rabbi here is bringing up me say 16 26 again he must he says you must say that he was created for the toil of the mouth. And still I do not know whether it was for the toil of the mouth of the toil of Torah or the toil of conversation. When the verse states, this Torah scroll shall not depart from your mouth, Yehoshua, which is Yeshua, chapter 1, verse 8, you must say that he was created for the toil of Torah. And that is the meaning of what Rabbah said. All bodies are like receptacles to store items until use. Happy is the one who is privileged who is a receptacle for Torah. So, yeah. All right, Brukashem. How many are children? How many children? All right. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, light the menorah. Let's learn about some numbers in the Torah. Numbers in the Torah. If you see the number eight, guess what? The number eight stands for out of this world. It represents transcendence. Going beyond, go beyond physical reality. Hanukkah is eight days, and it says that um, the most, or a more famous example of Israel not being bound by natural limitations of time is manifest in the eight day rabbinic oral Torah traditions festival of Hanukkah. Hanukkah records the military and spiritual, physical and spiritual, victory against the Syrian Greeks. In the capture and re-inauguration of the second temple. Here, a small flask of pure, uncontaminated olive oil was used to kindle the menorah. By the way, this sleek this flask that is used is synonymous with 
Karen. And it's also uh, another word. I think it's katonet or something. Not katonet, like not garments. Uh, I'm blanking on the other word. But there's a specific flask that is used and it's called a, um, it has a narrow way that the oil is poured through. It's not like a giant picture that's just a big mouth of open pour. It's a very small opening that a little bit of oil can come through. It trickles through. And it was saying that uh, this is how kings are anointed. This is how the priest is anointed with this, with this specific flask of pure olive oil. So when you look at the fact of carrying Yeshua, the flask of the, uh, the vessel of Yeshua, and then the anointing, which is called Mashiach. By the way, when you anoint something, you Mashiach something. And so when you're anointed by Mashiach, when his oil is poured out upon you, when the oil for the king or the priest or the menorah is all poured out, it comes through a narrow opening. Mighty Hover brings up, this is why it says narrow is the path, few find it. But wide is the path to destruction. And this is why when we are in our Torah observance and we're being anointed by Mashiach every single day that we're returning to him, making teshuva, we're getting a little bit of pour. And that's where that trickle, that stream that runs down the beard of Aharon, that picture, that comes from. So we need to let his Torah pour over us from the narrow path. Okay, it seems like, man, that's weird. Why don't you just pour out all the oil? You're taking forever to do this. It's like these things take time. So anyway, it says, here's a flask, uncontaminated olive oil, miraculously burned for eight days. The enemy forces that waged an ideological, ide, ideological war against Israel are depicted as darkness. So darkness is coming against the source of light, not just the light itself, the source of it. Okay, so they knew what was up. This is why for us, understanding how to overcome darkness where does darkness come from it comes from a darkening of the senses the yetzahara being more in control and if we don't get down to the root of things we're gonna have a hard time overcoming it so even in our own hearts this is why one of my prayers for our avenger group at havdala was that hashem shine your light into the deep dark facets of who we are and that's a dangerous prayer i realize so slicha to my fellow havarim but you know hey it's we need to do it because we're not going to be ready for the redemption if not so shining that light into these deep dark recesses because when we get down to the source of what's causing all of our anguish what's causing all of our sadness what's causing all of our confusion what's calling all of our swing and temptation and things that take us out and and don't free us up for the things that we should be able to see it's coming from that it's coming from these sources that are within us that are dark that are uh that need to have the light shined upon it, that we need to release and submit to Hashem and, and say, Hashem, bring healing. Hashem, bring correction. Hashem, bring transformation. I want to be completely hidden in Mashiach. I want my body, my physical body to be transcended into spirituality, just like Sarah's was. Okay. I want to overcome my Yetzahara because I can, because it says he crouches at the door, but you can have mastery over it. I don't want to be a person who just casually sins. I want to be a person who strives beyond myself until the day that I die, or until Mashiach returns, whichever one comes first. Okay. Anyway, it says, despite making great strides in philosophy and the sciences, Greek culture centered upon natural phenomena. They heap scorn upon the existence of anything transcendental. Their efforts to Hellenize Israel sought to seduce them to forget their Torah. 
Basically, if you go back to what we just read about forgetting Torah, it wanted to stop us from sacrificing ourselves. It wanted to that quit being a living sacrifice and wanted us to stop that oral Torah stuff. Stop that Jewish stuff. Stop singing. Stop reviewing your Torah. Just be fine in the natural world. Go shopping. Go spend hours on YouTube. Go stay on Facebook all the time looking at pictures of cats. Go play a lot of sports and don't do anything with your Torah. Don't try to go into all this um, Shomer and all this kind of stuff. Don't be like super observant. Just do the bare minimum. Don't be looked at weird by the world. Like stay in this world so that people can like look at you like them so that you can be miserable and caught up in the drama and caught up in the sports and caught up in all the entertainment. That's what the Greeks and that's what this whole Hanukkah thing is about. Okay, that's why it's more important about the oil as it is about the battle, because what's the source of our victory in the physical battle is the spiritual. It's this oil. It's this upholding the Torah by the spirit of Hashem being hidden in Mashiach. And when we're looking at the lights of our Hanukkah, I pray that you stop, spend at least 30 minutes. So you know what I'm going to say? Go beyond that. This is why I love the the uh, middle road of the 45 minutes because it says you want to do 30 to like an hour and a half or something like that but if you do 45 minutes take the take the middle route the narrow path sing songs to Hashem pray to Hashem contemplate areas of your life that you want to overcome and stare at that light talk to Hashem engage with Hashem and you will overcome and have physical victory this present darkness Rabbi Griffin brings down even in today's Aliyah that as we are in as we're entering into Hanukkah, he made a declaration that we pray that Hashem would gather in the divine sparks. And I was like, wow, Rabbi, that's crazy. Because remember Elul, how we were doing the five for five, praying for people who are we have no idea, but just whoever God puts on our heart that may that doesn't know a thing about Torah. They may not know anything about Torah. They may never, ever in our own minds become Jewish, but to pray for them that Hashem's spirit would consume them and change their hearts and open their hearts to Mashiach and Torah and, and mitzvot and things like that. And it's just like, yeah, that's what we do. You know, so that's what we're going to do for this week. And I'm like, okay, so if that happened in Elul and all the craziness that ensued after that, because Hashem has been doing some awesome stuff. And so now it's like, yeah, let's take it up a notch for Hanukkah. Let's transcend. Let's go even more beyond that. It's like, psh, Rabbi, you crazy. I love it. It's great. Let's do it. Amen. Baruch Hashem. Ken own, by the way. So anyway, the light of Mashiach may it draw in divine sparks. Then it says... Um, continuing here, by the way, I'm reading from the Jewish wisdom in the numbers by Chaim Levine. It's a lot of Chaim over here. Chaim Kramer, Chaim Levine, Chaim Mayim, Chaim something, something. Okay. Anyway, uh, says their, their efforts to Hellenize Israel sought to seduce them to forget their Torah. Got to see what the footnote says on that. The Al-Nassim prayer and see Maimonides on Hillcoat Hanukkah 3.1. So the prayer again that we say during the Amidah and during the Birkat Hamazon. Okay, anyway, so it says that uh, one of our one of their main decrees was to discontinue Brit Milah. So anybody against circumcision, they're trying to keep you out the light. 
Okay, anyway, and they're trying to keep you from getting food during the famine. Because if you don't get circumcised, you don't get any food. Anyway, circumcision is way beyond just circumcising your flesh. Because if you circumcise your flesh, but you have not a circumcised heart, and the Yetzahara is still your main source, and not seeking and striving to Hashem, then your physical circumcision is of no value. I believe that's what... Uh, Shaul was getting at with the Galatians about the people who are of the circumcision. It's like, let them circumcise themselves. Let the knife slip, by the way. She's like, oh, can't believe he just said that. Man, that was a sharp comment. Okay, anyway, and below the belt at the same time. But anyway, okay, so, but they could not defile Yisrael's supernatural link to the number eight. In the temple, the Greeks were able to desecrate only the Hakel. The holy place, which is associated with the number seven, but not otherworldly eighth dimension, which is the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. Eight is also synonymous with the Messianic Era. And footnote on that, see the number 50 all the way. So 50, the Jubilee and all that kind of stuff corresponds to the Holy of Holies. All right. So that was uncalled for. And finally... The number 36, which is the number of candles, which is what I was saying, the number of tractates of the oral Torah. This is all found in Yosef, which is all found in Yeshua. Okay, it says 36 is synonymous with light. It is the symbol of illumination and divine revelation that reveals the inner light of the Torah hidden within. Okay, Zaphonat Paneach, that's what we're going to do, huh? That's what we're going to do. 36. Uh, it says that um, the number 36 is found in the introduction of light on day one of creation and in the symbolism of the illumination of Torah. The sources of natural light illuminating the earth are the heavenly luminaries, but the light of the sun, moon, and the stars was fashioned on day four of creation. So what was the light? So what was the nature of the light created on day one when God said, let there be light and there was light? In truth, the primordial light created on the first day refers to the spiritual essence embedded within existence. It is about how God is manifest within creation and the way that the universe relates to him. The ability to tap into this primordial light would have enabled man to see the whole picture, i.e. the two things that Hava stumbled on as far as what caused her to eat from the tree. That's would have been taken care of had she tapped into this primordial light. The spirit, okay? How are we seeing the mitzvah? Are we tapped in? Tap in. You tap in through Mashiach Yeshua. Embody his essence. Eat of his flesh. Drink of his blood. Get into the oral Torah. Pray to Hashem. Do mitzvah. Make teshuva. Light neatly ties in with the number 36 as there are a total of 36 expressions of light found within the Torah. Footnote 9. Footnote 9 says, uh, Hilkot Hanukkah, Simon 225, uh, Kislev through Tevet 28, 36 times is inclusive of all expressions of lights, including Ner, Meorot, and Or. It's all about light. 36. And then it says, of one of the foremost symbols of light were the Lukot, which is the tablets, the sapphire tablets given by God to Moshe, upon which the Ten Commandments were engraved. Its dimensions were six by six, namely 36, the square handbreadths. 
footnote 10, Nedarine 38A and Baba Batra 14A. Then it says that, uh, and, and okay, so the six by six, the hand breaths by the hand breaths, it said this is the height of a Jewish man. So when you think about Mashiach being a man, being the Torah made into the, a man, then it says that uh, Yeshua says, I'm the light of the world. That's why you get it, because the tablets are called light. Okay, so Mashiach is the light of the world. He is the primordial light in the form of man. Okay, then it says, in, in the period leading up to his passing, Moshe's final teaching of Torah and Mishneh Torah, which is the book of Devarim, began on the first of Shabbat. Shavat, Slika, the month of Shavat, which is where Tuba Shavat, the new year for the trees, is found, continued for 36 days up till his death on the 7th of Adar. Then it says, just as the soul was hidden within the body, so is the hand of God concealed within the natural world. The Jew's mission is to reveal both his own soul and God's hand by projecting out the light, which, by the way, is into our uh, Incidentally, were the Sephirot. They're also projectors of the light of Hashem. So when you put the Sephirot together, you get the pure light of Hashem, which is why the ten Sephirot correspond to the ten commandments, which correspond to the body of Messiah, because the body of Messiah is all the Sephirot connected together. Because you look at sometimes when you look at the tree of life, the Kabbalah, the Sephirot, they always lay that over a human body and show you how they all correspond to different parts of the body. And that's why Mashiach's body is such a thing, you know, like understanding he is the, the light. Okay, anyway, so it says both his soul and God's hand by projecting the light. In effect, this means tapping in. I don't know how many times I say tapping in. Tapping into the spiritual essence embodied within the existence and within his very being. One must identify and be in touch with the all-important inner dimension hidden by the natural realm. There's something beyond this natural world that we need to tap into. How do you do that? You have to have a decipher, a decoder, just like in the Matrix. Why was Neo called the one? Because he could see the code and he could manipulate it. He knew what to do with it. That's why he dodged bullets. That's why he flew. That's why he stopped bullets, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that is the meaning of Zaphonat Paneach is when you do that. So we have to be in Mashiach Yeshua to get beyond this world. Can't do it on your own. This is why trying to do Kabbalah any other way without it being connected to Torah is called witchcraft. Because you're manipulating things based off your own picture. So now you're eating from the tree again, just like Hava. She didn't know that the wood of the tree was also good and provided wisdom, not just the fruit. So anyway, says that means that he is to release into the universe the connecting lights of his soul, of godliness and of Torah. The children of Israel light up the world by dispelling darkness that covers the land in their capacity as light unto the nations. We are to be lights unto the nations. Mashiach says, you are the light of the world. Hanukkah lights. Final thing. Says the, prev the prevalent custom is to light one candle on the first night, two candles on the second night, etc., etc. During the eight days, a total of 36 lights are kindled. In the works of Kabbalah, these lights correspond to the 36 hours of the primordial light, which is now concealed, stored up, hidden for the righteous. So if you're not hidden in Mashiach, then you won't be able to find the hidden light. It says, Hellenistic culture glorified the natural order, which obscures the divine hand in creation and the or news which is the hidden light creation obscures it it obscures the hand it says divine hand in creation and the or news the light and the hand are connected pun intended and they're one in the same 
So if you got the hand of God, if you got the Orhaganus, okay, you have Mashiach because he is the hand of God. Due to their opposition to godliness and their worship of nature, the Syrian Greeks, as the epitome of Choshek, which is darkness, defiled the Beit HaMikdash, which is the temple, which is termed Ora Shel Olam, the light of the world. The temple is called the light of the world. This is why Mashiach says something greater than the temple was here, because he is the true light of the world that the temple was a copy of, or was Mashiach a copy of the temple? Because remember, Mishneh, 36 and all that, says on Hanukkah, Yisrael's victory over the adversaries was marked by the discovery of a hidden jar of uncontaminated oil. The light of this oil miraculously burned for eight days. Symbolically, the spiritual illumination of Hanukkah as a symbol of the primordial light vanquished the Syrian Greek darkness. The illumination of the 36 lights of Hanukkah was to draw out and tap in to the Or Haganus hidden in the natural world. The illumination of the 36 lights of Hanukkah was to draw out. Everything about Mashiach is drawing, by the way. He draws you near to Torah. He draws you to Hashem. He draws you to Teshuvah. He draws you to Torah observance. If you're not being drawn, if you're not being wooed, then that's a problem. Don't let anybody force you into Torah because you will have a Torah that is def devoid of Mashiach, which is no Torah at all. The illumination of the 36 lights of Hanukkah was to draw out and tap into the Or Haganus, tap into the divine hand of God in this natural world. This specifically accomplished through the light of the Torah Sheba'al Pei, the oral Torah, the oral law, in contrast to the Torah Shebikatav, the written law, the Bible, as we know it like the Matthew or the uh, Genesis through Revelation Bible, the written Torah, received prophetically beyond man. Man, it says the nature of Torah Shabbat Pei lies deeply buried inside man's soul. Man's soul. The privilege of expounding Torah with the hidden lights shining forth from within was entrusted into the hands of man personified by the sages. This is where that com crazy confusion that uh, people who are against Torah come up with. Yeah, uh, the Torah was given to man. And so therefore, even if a divine voice from Hashemayim says a decree that it can be overruled by the sages. And so that's not something you want to be into. Right. But here's the here's the trick, because there is a Talmud account about a, a ruling that was made halakhically and Hashem gave out a divine voice. And they said, yeah, Hashem. That's great, but uh, we're going to go with this because you gave us the charge and the authority on the Torah. You empowered us by the Torah to make these rulings. So therefore, even if you speak out in a divine voice and you say something different from our ruling, then by the power that you invested within us, we're going to make this ruling. And incidentally became a contradiction. And then Hashem's response to that was, oh, my children, they've overcome me. It's just like, so yeah, so that's used as a, as a bash against the old Torah. But the trick is, to quote Rabbi Griffin, even though he says like, I say trick, but it, I'm not saying trick in the common sense of the word trick, but I'm just saying the, the, the thing is, the thing that you got to realize and see through and recognize, 
is if you are ruled by the spirit of Hashem, you will not walk in contrary to the divine decree of Hashem. So whatever the halakhic ruling may be, if it's going to go against Hashem, then you need to check whose spirit is the source of that halakha. Okay? This is why the the common halakha, which is not a halakha decreed by the Sanhedrin, so that's why it's a problem, because the Sanhedrin was disbanded like first, second century, like after the destruction of the temple. The halakha that exists today, no driving on Shabbat and all that kind of stuff, that's why that's a problem, because if you take out that and say, if, if the only way you can get to shul is to drive to Shabbat, and so therefore no driving on Shabbat, the spirit of that is that you're keeping people away from Torah. So the spirit of the way that I can get to Shabbat, the way that I can get to shul, the way that I can get to be with my family and my friends who are Torah observant and forsake not the assembly, the way that I can do that, the only way I can do that is by driving, then I'm going to drive because it's better to drive and, and get together and keep all these positive commandments than it is to say, do not Shabbat, do not drive on Shabbat, which would be, quote unquote, a negative commandment if it was such, because a do not is less in value than a do. It's more, it's better to do than to do not when it comes to the mitzvot. So if Hashem says, keep Shabbat, that overrules do not drive on Shabbat. All right. So that's kind of a crazy swerve and pun intended because we're talking about cars and driving. But anyway, Hanukkah Sameach to everyone. I pray that the Orhaga news really uh, charges us all up and that the divine sparks are gathered in and that you really take time to sing to Hashem, to raise up some beautiful children of Torah, to really tap in to the oral Torah, to really be hidden in Mashiach Yeshua, dive into the oral Torah, get some pill pool going, okay? Exegete this thing, work out these contradictions, work out what the sages are saying, get your rabbi, okay? Follow him because Hashem has given you a shepherd to oversee the flock, okay? So are you going to be a part of the flock or are you not? Okay, because birds of a feather, we we flock together and we're called doves as children of Israel. So uh, not that we need to trust our rabbi over Hashem because he shouldn't be our rabbi if he's leading us away from Hashem. So there's that. But anyway, line everything up. Keep praying. Keep making teshuva. Don't give up. Okay, darkness is pressing in on every side. But the, the Geula, the redemption, happens exactly like sunrise, and it is a process of birth pains, okay? Just like a woman is in travail giving birth, so it is, is us getting to the redemption. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. We're going to have to fight harder. We need to become more violent and take the kingdom by force. We need to be more adamant in our uh, devotion to Hashem and keeping His word. So do it. This is Parashami Kates, because at the end of this period, we're going to be with our king and the whole world will know Yeshua is our righteousness and that Hashem is Melech HaOlam. So tell everybody for joining me for the drop zone for uh, Parsha Vayishlak all the way to Parashami Kates and for Hanukkah. So blessings to you all. And what do we know? What do we know? Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher natan lanu Torah temet, Vechaye olam natabetokeinu, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten ha Torah, Amen. Adonai, 
May we merit to see the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days.